That threw me off there before that last stanza. Good morning, everyone. Certainly is good seeing all of you here this morning, especially if you are visiting with us. We want you to know that you are a welcome guest and that we are thankful that you have come our way. Good morning to those of you who are at home uh, live streaming. We're glad that you're here with us in spirit as, as well. I, can't, I don't know about you, but I just can't wait for next uh, Sunday morning. Uh, don't forget the next Sunday morning, we're going to be back to a one in-person service together with one another. We are leaving up the remote service so that if you feel like you need more social distancing because of that, certainly feel free to use that area to worship. And other than that, we're all going to be in here. Masks will be required. Uh, we're gonna, we won't be passing any trays in terms of communion, so you'll need to get your individual communion uh, cups as well as the, the uh, offering will be left in the back for you to give there as well or to choose what way that you're going to be uh, giving. On Sunday evening, we'll be back to the normal worship period that we had before the pandemic uh, began in a single uh, service there with singing and the Lord's Supper, and I'll be bringing a message at that uh, time. Let me remind you of some the classes. Uh, generally, what we've been doing here for the last almost year, well, actually about nine months, is we've been having our Sunday evening uh, Bible classes all, uh, in the evening. Well, that will return back to in the morning. And so in the morning, uh, Jared McCormick is going to be teaching a class on strengthening our grip. And I've seen the material, and so it's going to be good. And Jared is always certainly a capable uh, teacher, and it's going to be really good uh, there. And then on Wednesday night, I'll be teaching a class on unlocking the book of Revelation. And so if you've ever had questions about Revelation, that would be a good time to maybe attend uh, that class. Other classes will be happening as well. Clinton will be doing a young adults uh, family class, as well as the ladies will have a Bible class, I believe, on Wednesday evening as, as well. So whether you're talking about a company or whether you're talking about an organization such as, say, a a, a, a political group or maybe it's a sports team or maybe a, a band or maybe you're working on some kind of you know project at home they all have one thing in common and that is they all have a mission that they want to achieve and whether that mission is written or whether it is unwritten nevertheless there is an objective that they're trying a desired objective that they're trying to drive toward and so missions are super important uh, take for instance uh, coca-cola if you think about Coca-Cola, it seems to be everywhere, right? And you might ask the question, well, how in the world did they get everywhere? Well, back in, 19, in the 1980s, when I first started making my trips to Ghana, West Africa, my first trip there, we spent six weeks there. In that six weeks period, I don't think I saw a single cube of ice. And there were no cold drinks anywhere unless you went into a bar and you were to drink beer. But other than that, there were not just sodas to, to drink. There was no such thing as a Coca-Cola there. There was not Pepsi-Cola there. There was not Fanta and Nehi's. There was not any of those kinds of things that were there. On my second trip to Ghana, however, Coca-Cola showed up on the scene. And not only could you find a cold Coca-Cola, there was also a plant that was put in Tema. It was a huge Coca-Cola factory that produced Coca-Cola. And so Coca-Cola became something that was all around. And so back to my question, how in the world were they able to do such a thing? Well, if you were to go to their headquarters, you would see their posted motto or their mission, and that is think globally, but act locally. And they were able to spread in that kind of way. And so Coca-Cola, they did not become something that uh, started off globally. They started off in a very local kind of, of way. It was invented by a fellow by the name of Dr. Uh, uh, John Pemberton. He was a pharmacist in Atlanta, Georgia. He invented it around May of 1886. He came up with, a, developed a syrup. 
Uh, Pemberton was a Confederate soldier. He had been wounded as a soldier, was a morphine addict, and so he came home and tried to develop some kind of elixir that he could drink that would soothe him and, and get him off of the morphine. And so he put a number of ingredients. No one really knows exactly what those ingredients were, but he put some ingredients and he in developed this syrup that was incredibly good tasting. So at Jacob's Pharmacy in Atlanta, uh, that's where it all be began. And it was of such a hit that a fellow by the name of Candler, a businessman, he learned about it, and so he ended up buying the name as well as the rights to Coca-Cola, and they, with his marketing tactics, his abilities, he began to spread that merchandise all around, and it became a dominant drink in the 20th century. In fact, by the time you got to 2013, uh, Coke was being sold in over 200 countries. And on a daily basis, even today, 1.8 billion people drink some kind of Coca-Cola beverage in a day. It all began with a mission and with a, a thought. After Apple and Google, it's the third most recognized brand in, in the world. That's how popular it was, but it's all because of their mission to think globally, but to act in a local kind of way. And I got to thinking about that as we were going through this series on Reset, and, and I got to thinking how that model could be easily placed within the church itself. Jesus, he makes three statements or three commands that he directs his disciples toward their mission. Before he ascends on high, in Matthew, the 28th chapter, in verse 19, as he meets the disciples by the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection, he gives them the commission in verse 19 where he says, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or Mark the 16th chapter in verse 15 where he, says, uh, where he says, go and preach the gospel to all creation. And so when you look at those words there, that is a global kind of mandate. And then before he ascends on high over in Acts the first chapter and verse 8, he says, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. That's local. Samaria, that's local to the remotest parts of the world. And as you get to Colossians, the first chapter in verse 23, you'll learn that the church had spread to the entire known world. The gospel had gone out into the world. And so they, you know, Jesus thought globally, but they began to act locally. And that's how the church began in an incredible kind of way. And so Jesus would, like I said, these three statements or these three commands, he lays before his disciples what is to be our mission statement, what we are to be all about. The problem is, is that as you go down through things and you deal with the various concerns of life and you go through periods like we have gone through with this pandemic, it's easily to maybe get distracted or maybe even neglect what the mission of the church really is about. And if I were to just kind of catch you without kind of setting this thing up and just ask you the question, what is the mission of the church? Or if you were to go into the community and ask them, what is the mission of the church? Well, over the years, I've asked those questions, and here are some of the answers that I have got. Some would say that it is to care for its members. We are to keep those saved uh, saved. We would say that the church is here to visit the sick and to pray for them, and that we are to help take care of people who are in transitions of their life, everything from them getting married, married to them having children to eventually them dying or, or death it, itself. Some would say that it's, we're here to provide a, a guidance and comfort to, to people in all the important times of their lives. And, and, and those would all be true. 
there's without any doubt that those are all functions and responsibility of what the church is about. But I would argue that that is not the primary mission. Now, we know what the primary purpose of the church is, and that is to glorify God. And I think over time I've shared with you that there are ways in which we glorify God, but certainly one of the ways we glorify God and carry out the primary mission of the church is to reach into the world. Well, how do I know that? Well, I know that because God is a missionary God. The Bible is a missionary book. The gospel is a missionary message. The church is a missionary institution. When the church ceases to carry out the mission, when we cease to carry out uh, what Christ has placed before us and cease to be mission-minded, well, then all of a sudden we begin to portray a trust that Christ has given to us. We, we begin to become disobedient to a mandate that Jesus laid out for the church. And we know that churches are not church buildings. And we know the church is the church at large in terms of all the members, but when you break it down all the way to its smallest degree, then each individual makes up that church, and it means that each member is the one, are the ones who are to carry out that mission mandate. Now, there's various ways that we can go about carrying out the mandate, okay? Not everyone is a preacher. Not everyone is a teacher uh, in those kinds of positions, but all of us are Christians. All of us know of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we are to find ways in which we as members can help, you know, propagate the gospel and move it out into the world. So essentially speaking, the church's responsibility is really only one mission, and that is to evangelize all nations by thinking globally and then acting locally within these people here. And so we as a congregation, we reach out to other parts of the world, people on the other side of the globe, and that's a good thing. But we're also to be locally working within our community, and that's why we have been placed here. The danger is this, is that it's always easy to fall into a maintenance mentality as a congregation and just take care of ourselves. And over the last year, to at least a some degree, we've been somewhat in what I would call a survival mode. We're just trying to make sure that we maintain things and keep people connected and, and stay connected in, in good kinds of ways and that we make sure that our fellowship remains healthy, not only physically, but spiritually as, as well. So we've been kind of in a mode where we're just trying to maintain what is going on while taking a rest from maybe the mission itself and instead of just watching out for ourselves we forget about those who are are lost and so we get to think of the you know the church is here for us rather than the church is here for the lost we have a a mission we're to keep those saved saved but we're also to be saving those who are around us who are lost living in a dark place without the lord and so in keeping with our theme that I've been sharing with you now for, I think, the last couple of months, I want to talk to you about resetting our mission across the street and uh, around the world. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew, the ninth chapter. Matthew chapter 9. It's a great section of Scripture here, beginning in verse 35. And Jesus was going about the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and 
downcast and like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Beseech the Lord of harvest or pray to the Lord of harvest that he would send out workers into the harvest itself. As you think about those words, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Jesus is standing there and the people are coming to him in great waves. Some say maybe thousands of people were coming to him. And as Dana mentioned, you know, God had been silent for over 400 years. I was so impressed with that thought, Dana, that you shared with us. Of, as you took us back into the 1600s, said, that's 400 years. And I thought, wow, that really puts it in perspective. And so God had been silent for over 400 years. And then came along John the Baptist, and he began to prepare the way of the Lord. And then Jesus began to speak. If you recall back in the Sermon on the Mount, as he continues that, uh, uh, finishes up with that, that, that sermon, you remember the people said that he speaks as no one has ever speak, because when he speaks, he speaks with authority. So people were heard about him, and he had a reputation, so people were coming out to him to hear his teaching and to see his miracles. And as they were coming to him in waves of people, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. But the workers are, are few. And then he says, beseech the Lord of harvest to send forth workers or laborers into the harvest. The way Jesus uh, addresses this problem of these people that are in this condition around him is that Jesus has an uncommon approach to the mission. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. I want to share with you the, an uncommon approach that Seldom do we think about this, this approach, but as we start to come out of this pandemic and as we start to make baby, sticks into, baby steps into normality, and as we begin to reset the mission that is set before us, where is it that we're supposed to uh, begin? Well, Jesus' approach as he comes onto the scene is that of compassion. In fact, he says, seeing the multitudes of people, he had compassion upon them because they were downcast like sheep without a, a shepherd. And so he doesn't automatically exhort his followers, you know, to share their faith, leave everything behind, to give up all their talents and move it to, in that direction. Rather, he begins to state to them a fact about what the multitudes of people are, are going through. And he says to them that they are downcast. They are like sheep. They're downcast. They are, they're distressed. They're like sheep that are without a shepherd. And so he uses the shepherd-sheep metaphor, if you will, as a shepherd is taking care of the sheep. And the idea would be is that God is the shepherd or Jesus is the good shepherd and the people are the sheep. And what he is saying as he looks at this flock of sheep is he sees people that are downcast. He sees people that are distressed. These two words, distressed and downcast, they actually paint a very bleak kind of picture because the words themselves means to be harassed or to be thrown down. And when I think about that picture in my mind's eye and when I think about sheep being harassed and, and downcast and distressed, I, I, I see a, a flock of sheep who are being surrounded by, by wolves and are being harried and being chased and being brought down and being killed. That's the idea that comes in my eyes anywhere in my mind. And I think that that's what Jesus was seeing. He is seeing people who were really beaten down. He saw people who were harassed, distressed, but they were religious people. They were God's people. They were Israel. And yet he could see that these people were in a bad place and there was a pity that was in Jesus because of that. 
I love what William Barclay in one of his commentaries spoke as he wrote about this idea of downcast and distressed. He uses the word bewildered. Here's how he put it. The Jewish leaders who should have been giving men strength to live were bewildering men with subtle arguments about the law which had no help or comfort in them. When they should have been helping the men to stand upright, they were bowing them down under the intolerable burden of the scribal law. They were offering men a religion which was a burden instead of a support. We must always remember that the Christian religion exists not to discourage, but to encourage, not to weigh men down with burdens, but to lift them up with wings. And that's why it's called the gospel. That's why it's called the good news or a good message that we are to be bringing. And that the good message oftentimes is challenging. The good news oftentimes kind of pushes us out of our comfort zone. But it's good news because there's always a result that Jesus has intended, even as he talks about the mission and even as he talks about beseeching the Lord of, of harvest. These people, the Jewish leaders, the shepherds of Israel, they were binding heavy burdens upon the people in Matthew, the 23rd chapter, which is known as the woes pat section, if you will, there he said, they bind heavy burdens hard to bear. They lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves would not move even a single finger to lighten up the load. And if you look at Matthew, the 23rd chapter and verse 23, he says, you tithe and dill and mint and cumin, but you left the weightier measures of the law to do justice, to have mercy or compassion and to be faithful these things you should to do without leaving behind the rest but notice that he says in the center of that of justice and faithfulness he talks about mercy or compassion jesus is filled with compassion what does that word mean where it comes from an interesting word it's the word splagna it means inward parts or the entrails. In the Greek's mind, when they talked about that, they, they talked about uh, splagna being this deep, uh, within their bowels kind of thing. It could describe uh, these deep emotions or violent aggressions or passions or great affections. Actually, the word means that a person is moved to the point of tears. Having great pity, having great empathy upon those who are around and so jesus so the bible says that when jesus saw the multitudes he was filled with compassion or felt compassion for the people because here is their condition i'm almost sure i've set, shared this illustration if i did it's had to have been numerous years ago but there's a story about dwight moody for those of you who may not know who dwight moody was dwight moody was an evangelical minister who was huge back at the turn of the 20th century he crossed the pond whether he went over to england and preached he drew crowds i'm not talking about crowds of hundreds or or just a thousand or a couple thousand he had thousands up to thirty thousand people that would come and listen to dwight moody, moody preach when he was in the states he traveled in places like chicago and new york and philadelphia and boston and he held great crowds there in fact the largest crowd to ever be in madison square garden was where moody held a revival so he was a guy they say they would go to watch uh, listen to dwight moody because they say we went to watch this guy burn 
because he was burned, burning with passion and compassion for those that he preached to. He didn't water it down. He didn't soften it. You may not agree with all of his doctrine, but this guy was something else in his day. One time a, a number of preachers, a group of preachers, heard that Dwight was, or Moody was going to be in New York City, so they asked for an audience with Moody. And Moody agreed to it, and so they went up to his room in this high-rise apartment area. They went into the, this room closer to the ground, and as he went into the room after some pleasantries and talking to Dwight Moody about ministry and, and this and that, one of the ministers asked Moody, they asked him, he says, what is it that has made you so successful? What is it that has caused you to, you know, to achieve so much? And Moody motioned these ministers over. He says, come over with me. And he went over to a large picture glass window. And he pointed down to a park like the scene that is behind me. And he asked those ministers, he asked them, what do you see? And they stood there for a while and contemplated. And finally, uh, one of the ministers said, he goes, well, we see people. We see people playing. We see people playing catch. We see people picnicking. We see people on walks. We see people with their animals. We, we see people. And Dwight Mooney had been looking at the same picture window, and when he turned around, he looked at them. He goes, and that's the difference between me and you. You see people. I see lost souls. And he had tears in his eyes. He looked at people differently. He didn't see them just as human beings out having a fun day in the bright sun. He saw people who were downcast and distressed, distressed like sheep without a shepherd, and it broke his heart. Somehow we as the church have got to get there somehow where we feel that, that compassion for people who are around us. And my opinion is, is that until we start seeing that and start seeing people as lost and not just fellow human beings that are walking this path with us on this journey called life, until we see that that journey of life is going to end in eternity somewhere and some are going to go to heaven, which are probably going to be few, and the rest are going to go to hell until we start seeing that, we probably will not be carrying out the mission. And so somehow we got to get to that point. Well, Jesus almost abruptly, he changes the metaphor. He changes the metaphor from sheep and shepherds to harvest and work. And he says, as he looks at these people, having this great compassion within them, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So who are these workers that Jesus is going to be talking about? Well, in the two metaphors, the first one is the sheep and shepherd metaphor where it talks about a man's needs being met by God. That's God being the shepherd, Jesus being the good shepherd, and then there are the sheep. When you talk about the harvest and the workers, now you're talking about God's need being met by man. And the ideal there would be that Jesus alone can save people, but he cannot save people alone. That people have to be a part of what's going on. People have to be involved in the mission it, it, itself. But the thing that you'll see here is that as Jesus begins to pass along the mission to his disciples, he cannot pass along the compassion. He can pass along the mission, not the emotion, not the pity, not the, the empathy. And so Jesus' approach that is uncommon is that of passion or compassion for people that is almost juxtaposed to that of his disciples when you look at say Matthew the 14th chapter verses 14 through 17 here's what it says and when 
went ashore, he saw a great multitude and felt compassion for them. And he healed their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him saying, the place is desolate. And I've been there, by the way, and it is. The place is desolate. And the time is already passed. So send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have only five loaves and, and two fish. And you remember Jesus performs the miracle of feeding the 5,000. But the disciples, Jesus has compassion on them, but the disciples, they're callous to that fact. And he says, send them away. It's getting a long evening. Let them go find some food somewhere. And Jesus says, no, they're here for a good reason. Let's feed them. With what? And then Jesus does something incredibly amazing before them when he multiplies the fish and the loaves. Jesus' approach was one of, of empathy. In Matthew, the 15th chapter, verses 29 through 30, that's pretty small for you to see, so I'll read it once again. And departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up to the mountain, he was sitting there, and a great multitude came to him, bringing with him those who were lame and crippled and blind and, and dumb, and many others, and they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them, so that the multitudes marveled as they saw the dumb speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the multitudes because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not wish to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to them, where would we get so many loaves in a desolate place to satisfy such a great multitude? Isn't that crazy? There's this, you know, Jesus has compassion. They have indifference to the, the people. It's like, do you guys not remember just a little bit before how we fed 5,000 with five loaves and, and, and two fish? And you're asking now, how are we going to feed this multitude of, of people? Talk about guys with short memories. And so there was this indifference. And one, there's, there's a callousness, there's an indifference. But in Jesus, there is a consistent compassion or empathy. And he has a hands-on approach. In another instance, in Matthew, the 19th chapter, verses 13 to 14, there it says, some children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and, and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the children along and do not hinder them from coming to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Don't bother the master. He's a busy man. He doesn't have time for children. What can an adult get from a children? Well, nothing in terms of power, in terms of praise, or in terms of, of any of those things. But notice how Jesus feels about the children. Do not do this. Don't rebuke the people. Let the children come to me. That's where the, the, the kingdom of God belongs to these. They're innocent. And why not start there? Because they are what's going to be tomorrow when they grow up. And so I've got time even for the children. And that's what I love so much about our congregation. And that's what I love so much about the fact that we are resetting that priority in our congregation to make sure that our children are being fed and that they have fellowship with, with one another. And those teachers, they know that they're not going to get tons of praise. They certainly know they're not going to get power. Children can't give that to them unless... It's the idea of the reward of seeing these children become, you know, teenagers and then adults and stay faithful because they sit at their feet and were taught by these, these, these teachers of younger people. 
Jesus saw the value even of children. And so Jesus had this approach that was different oftentimes from those around. You would think after him showing them the big picture of how people are lost. The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, there's so much people that are lost. You would think he would tell them, okay, so you guys get out there and start picking. But he doesn't do that. It's an uncommon approach. He says, pray for the Lord of harvest. Some of your translations, beseech the Lord of harvest to send out laborers or workers into his harvest. I don't know about you, but why would he start there? And I got to thinking about that, and I think the way he, why he starts there is because when you pray for people, your insides start to change. Your heart starts to change when you pray for the people. And not only do when you pray for the people do you do that, but you also find out that these labors that you're praying for, the sin for labors, are you. You're the laborer that he is talking about. And without him saying, you are the ones that need to go get them, he's going to let them come into this on their own. And it's an uncommon approach, so he tells them to start praying. Start praying for the multitudes. And in praying for the multitudes, they'll begin to see themselves. As we reset our mission to the, the world, we need to start praying. We're doing baby steps now, but when we open up, okay, I'm saying to you that we need to be, start praying right now for this multitude of people that are around us. And I think it will change who we are and what we are about because we're resetting the mission that goes across the street and around the world. Well, what's the result of following Jesus' mission, his model? Well, the result that stems from prayer is this, the transfer of compassion. When you pray for people, you begin to change. Uh, his ways, that is Jesus' ways, become our ways, and his will becomes our will. He changes us from the inside out. He doesn't have to say, go pick them. He will allow us to come to that ourselves. That when we see those people, we will start to feel for them as Jesus felt for the people. E. Stanley Jones said this, Prayer is surrendered to the will of God in cooperation with that will. If I throw out a boat hook from the boat and catch hold of a shore and pull, I do, not, do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but aligning my will to the will of, of God. Prayer does that. It aligns us with the will of God. Prayer shifts the responsibility. So what happens between chapter 9 and chapter 10? Praying. I don't know how long that period of was there, but they begin praying, and when you get to chapter 10, they move from praying about the lost and needing labors in the field to becoming the labors in the field. Verse 10 and chapter 10, verse 1, and having summoned, summoned the 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And those guys, they took off and they went. They got active. They were personally in, involved. Before the disciples uh, had, uh, had only been tagging along with Jesus. They'd been listening to him. You know, he's the centerpiece. They'd been listening to him teaching and uh, doing various kinds of miracles. And they said on the outside, but now they are a part of it. Now it's transferred from just Jesus doing the preaching and teaching to they become the preachers and the teachers are going, are, and are going to be doing some miraculous things. And they become the labor force. And they go out two by two preaching and casting out demons and healing the sick. And they were amazed 
at what had gone on there. There was physical and, and mental exhaustion. After they went out, uh, they had spent themselves. And when they came back, they were excited to tell Jesus what all had happened. But not only were they excited, they were exhausted from all that it was drained out of them. And so the apostles, they get back together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and all that they had, had taught. And Jesus could see that they were fatigued and he says, okay, come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. And then it says, for there were many people that were coming and, and going and they, they, even, they didn't even have time to eat. And then it went away to a boat to a lonely place by themselves. So, think about this why didn't they have time to eat people were coming to them why were they coming to them some of it may have been because they heard about multiples uh, the multiplying the fish and loaves some of them might have been coming because of sicknesses and illnesses that were being cured or taken care of but my guess is is that they saw a difference in these disciples they were approachable i believe that they began to have that compassion and started to learn about the importance uh, of it. And so they need to be taken aside so that they can refresh themselves. Before the pandemic went on here, I think we had right at probably 22 activities that were going on in our congregation. We were a busy, busy, busy congregation. And there were times when I thought to myself, I know I probably discussed it with Clint, don't know if I discussed it with the other elders or not, but. There were times when I thought, man, we had our congregation so busy that we were just wearing them down to a, a nubbing. We are just so busy and encouraging to be so active. And I'm not saying that was a bad thing. I'm just saying that I, sometimes I thought to myself uh, that way. The answer to that was is that not everybody can do the same thing. And so the more ministries you have, the more places people can be a part and be, you know, be... Uh, have ownership into the ministry and work of the congregation. But because of that, maybe we needed to have a rest. And so maybe, in a way, that's what we have done for this last year is we've been given an opportunity to rest and to recharge and to renew as a congregation in, in terms of ministry and mission. And that we've had a, a pretty good rest. And so now we need to reset and get ready to, to go when things open up. And so we need to stay sharp. Well, how do we stay sharp? I was reading a story about a young man who went to a, a logging foreman. He wanted a job felling trees. And so the logging foreman saw that he's a fairly young man, but he gave him an opportunity. And so he says, well, why don't you go ahead and I'll fell this tree right here. And so the young man took out his axe and went to work. And man, he cut that thing down fast. And the foreman says, you're hired. You start Monday morning. So the young man showed up on Monday morning, and man, he worked. He went, I mean, he went at it. And then went by Tuesday and then Wednesday. And on Thursday, the foreman came up to the young man, and he said to him, listen, uh, at the end of the day, you need to go ahead and pick up your paycheck. And the young man was so surprised by that. He goes, I thought we got paid on Fridays. He goes, well, we normally do, but we're letting you go. And the man, young man, he goes, why? He goes, I've been working really hard. And the foreman said, he goes, well, on Monday, he says, uh, you were ahead of everyone in terms of pace and felling trees. But on Tuesday, you started to get more behind. On Wednesday, you were even further behind. And today, you've cut very few trees down. So we're letting you go. 
young man said, but look, he goes, I've been working hard. He goes, I've been getting here early. I've been staying late. I've been working through my, my coffee breaks even. And the foreman could see that the guy had integrity and character. And he asked him this question. He goes, well, let me ask you. He says, have you been sharpening your axe? And the young man said, well, no, I've been too busy working. So think about that for a second. In order to do the best work, you have to stay sharp. And so when I think of sharpening, prayer is a, a honing that gives you a sharp edge because without it, we can do all the work in the world, but we won't get anything done. And so Jesus, his uncommon approach is he starts them off by telling them, beseech the Lord of harvest. Here's the multitude, you see them. Beseech the Lord of harvest and send out workers into the harvest. And then in chapter 10 and verse 1, he says, now go. Go, you've sharpened and now go. And so we need to get ready as we start to really open up. People start to come and visitors start to come. We need to be ready, and so we need to reset. The mission game plan. Pretty simple. I'll try to run through this fairly quick. Number one is, is start strengthening your prayer life for the harvest. Start looking at people and start praying about the multitudes of people. Let me tell you, the harvest is no smaller today than it was back then. The harvest is still plentiful start praying for individuals start praying for your family and your friends and those you work with and those you go to school with take that name of that person that you know is lost but that you love and have compassion for and and take their name and put it in a prominent place put it on your you know put it on your bathroom mirror put it on your refrigerator put it before your stove put it somewhere on the dash of your car but start praying for your friends and your your neighbors start praying for open doors of opportunity let me tell you when you do that you'll be surprised the doors that open i'm sometimes i'm afraid to do that because i get so busy with ministry and writing sermons and classes and articles and all powerpoints and all those things that i think man the last thing i need to do is start having bible studies on tuesday evenings and and wednesday evenings well actually i can't do them on wednesday thursdays are elders things so now you're down to fridays and saturdays you know so but start praying for opportunities and then start praying for the courage to walk through those doors of opportunity so that you can carry out the good news that song i wish i'd had us sing this song here lead me to some soul today oh teach me lord just what to say friends of mine are lost in sin and cannot find their way few there are that seem to care and few there are who pray Melt my heart and fill my life. Give me one soul today. Listen, if we as a congregation just did one soul in a year as a congregation and say we had 200 families, which I know we'd have about 250 families, and each one prayed for one soul and each, one, each person brought one soul to the Lord, we would double our congregation. And that many people would be saved and that would be great. If the business of the church is not about the business of God, the church has no business being in business. The supreme mission of the church is to evangelize the world. Christ alone can save the world, but Christ alone cannot save the world alone. And that's why he's chosen us. And that's why he has given us a mission. So may you be encouraged that you'll start praying today and that you're going to be praying for those who are lost around us. 
And when we get ready to completely reset, we're going to be ready uh, to go in a huge kind of way. Whatever your need is this morning and your response is yours, why don't you come on together, we stand and sing and give you that opportunity.